But anytime you're being innovative, you're outside the standard process. Right. Once you're outside the standard process, anything is an opportunity yeah. for a mistake or a catastrophic failure. Donne-moi I'm Stephen Mark Voltz, and you're listening to Disaster, the podcast. Successful people tell their stories of failure. Because in life, failure isn't just an option, it's unavoidable. We talk with successful inventors, entrepreneurs, artists, performers, and scientists about the times, and we all have them, they weren't so successful. Celebrating failure as a necessary, but all too often hidden part of the creative process. Not talking about failure warps our view of the way the world works and of how innovation really happens. Sharing our stories gives us a fuller picture of what life is like and helps us understand the way progress is really made. Today's guest, James Dowd, owns and runs Flying Car, a Boston area ad agency he co-founded. Flying Car works with high-tech startups to help them get the word out for everything from robotic, self-piloting boats and cutting-edge medical devices to nonprofits like Ocean Alliance with their work using ocean-going drones to protect the world's whale population. Like every successful person, Jim's had some failures along the way, and the path to success wasn't always a straight line. Before founding Flying Car, he worked for years at some of Boston's major ad agencies, where he was once a key player on a team that lost a half-billion-dollar life-changing account because of a tiny, tiny, should-have-been insignificant mistake. I just start to hear this, this yelling. <laughs> it what? It what? What? And like people are just was that usual? Was that unusual? That was that was unusual. Right. That was yeah. unusual. And they clearly weren't jubilant. You know, when you hear a yell, <laughs> right. you're like, is that jubilant or not jubilant? And you know, you know, you know, lots of swearing. And you, oh my God, you're effing kidding me. This is you know. And then so like this is the stages of of, of grief start to sort of set in as to what has happened. Jim is also a very funny writer and co-creator of what's got to be the best local blog I've ever read, the Gloucester Clam. Clam's work in 2014, covering in its own unique, often R-rated style, the insane goings-on in the millionaire family feud over control of the $3 billion market basket supermarket chain, was so stellar everyone from Boston.com to Esquire magazine took notice. So everyone, and this is the thing, right? Everyone's so here. It's our grocery store. A lot of people work there. It's a sort of a center of the community in a lot of ways. And no one's telling the story about the hookers, <laughs> because the paper is telling the story of a conflict between two families with legal stuff. There's just hookers. There are hookers in the story. There are hookers in the story. You need to know that there are hookers involved, right? And so, like, and who doesn't want to hear about the hooker part of this? Of course, everything Jim did at the Clam wasn't a success. That stuff was just, I thought that stuff was funny. It was great. I loved writing it. It was, I loved reading it. It was totally non-offensive. No swear. Yeah, it didn't work. No one cared. No one cared. No one cared. Jim was also co-founder of the tech startup HelpGuest, which was a brilliant idea with great technology that in the end went belly up. All because of what Jim now admits was a special kind of blindness to customer feedback that he and so many tech companies are susceptible to. A blindness he now refers to as tech contempt. In retrospect, I'm remembering those comments and I poo-pooed them. I yeah, think I, I, yeah. I developed, uh, you know, even though I'm not an engineer, I think I developed a little bit of tech contempt. Tell me what you mean by that. Tech contempt is people, civilians, normal people, non-techie people, come up with an objection to an idea. And we techie, technophile <laughs> people say, nah, it's not, you don't have to worry about that. Don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. Yeah. Which is a killer, a killer. Tech contempt is a killer of, of good ideas. We get to talk to him today about all of that. So, so Flying Car came out of the insight uh, a few years ago that... Uh, that there is just so much tech work going on, um, you know, in, in the medical field, in the engineering field, in lots of different places, that it becomes really difficult for your regular advertising agency, for whom I've worked for many years, and who, you know, but tend to specialize in things like, you know, sneakers, vodka, fast food, you know, kind of consumer products. And once you, you step over the line to these really complex 
B2B, even like, you know, you know, I call them smart person to smart person things where it's engineers to scientists or, or to regulators and stuff. It just becomes too much of a lift for your standard advertising agency. So we formed a specialty group that really uh, is really focuses on this. You know, they call me the geek whisperer, I guess. That's the kind of the, the job. <laughs> yeah. So you you founded a tech company called Help Guest. That's correct. Yeah. What what was the – first of all, what did it do? Yeah. So the Help, Help Guest uh, was a – so folks are familiar, if you've ever worked in an, uh, an enterprise environment, uh, you're, you're talking to the IT help person and they say – they're trying to tell you what to do and you're like, I, I don't see the button you're talking about. And finally the person says – again, in, in an office, in a big office, in a big company that has a, an IT department, would, frequently you'd hear the IT guy, you know, his name is like, you know, Tad or something down in the basement <laughs> would say, say – Take your hands off your uh, keyboard, Virginia, your mouse, right? And all of a sudden, your mouse would start moving by itself. Right. Remember that experience? Yeah. And you'd kind of like get horrified, like, ah, ah, right? And he would just fix the thing. He would just fix it. So we built a, a system that allowed that to happen through the internet, which was novel at the time. It was a light load. It was really quick. Quick. You had to download a little app. And light load meaning it didn't take a lot of your processor take, time or your memory or that kind of thing. That's right. And you could click on it and it would basically create an inter immediate connection between the two computers. You could see the screen of the other computer. And then we put a meter in the middle so you could tell how much time that you had spent ah, in right. the in that center place. Like a taxi meter. But like a taxi right. meter. Yeah. yeah. So we, we yeah. grafted a taxi meter onto that. A lot of open store source modules that we were mm -hmm. kind of cobbled together mm -hmm. to do this. And, and I mean, I could go on here but say what it was intended to do was to allow people – to help other people, right, out in the world, um, you know, with their with their technology problems, and then you know, to say how much time they spent with a way to charge them for that. Right. We I, we grafted a little payment module onto that as well. Who was the potential market? Who are you, who are you looking at? So at the time, if you you're, think you're way back to 2005, uh, yeah. the everyone was the, our our inspiration was was really was eBay, right? Yeah. Was that people were building these marketplaces where they could set up their own. Shop and I mean we were a little bit um, you know we were a little bit uh, aspirational about this like we were thinking wow this is great people can set up their own uh, shingle and we could create a network of yeah. people who help right you know like eBay sellers you know and they, people right. selling different types of computational help you know that yeah. helps the Excel guy the PowerPoint guy the Photoshop guy or poor woman or so eBay got they got sellers that sell antique watches or sure. whatever right and buyers who are interested and they match they find each other on eBay right and you were gonna make a a market. And, a, and a, a technology that could allow specialists, tech specialists, to get to help people who don't have a tech specialist. That's correct, and they would be yeah. rated by the users. Yeah. They would have different prices. They would be able to to be on at different times. And we were just going to create a huge marketplace, and we would take a, you know a small percentage sure. of what people were doing. And you know you, you could go there and you could find help from everything from you know setting up websites, HTML to uh, to advanced coding problems, Excel, PowerPoint, you know all this the sort of Stuff that, and just think of how many times you know you've you've sat there staring at a screen, just just thought, oh, there's got to be a way to do this. Someone knows how to do this. I just wish that someone could, like a genie, could right. appear right now and and just show me like what the way to do this is. Because you need at that point you need ten minutes of someone who knows what they're doing, or all afternoon of you poking your way through. Right, yeah. right, right. Exactly. So that's what we were trying to provide was that genie who would just show up, right. boom, you know, short money. But if that person would do that enough, you'd, you'd be totally worth ten, twenty bucks. Yeah. They would get twenty, twenty bucks an hour, which is good money, and you know we would make a little money, and then boom, we'd be out. So potentially really big market. Right, potentially yeah. limitless market because yeah. who doesn't have this problem every single day, right? And, and what other companies were in that space at that point? So there, there was uh, there was no one in the space initially. We found doing it uh, for for pay. What we did find was that there were people creating lots and lots and lots of video help on YouTube. Um, as far as I can tell, there are people who come up with a particularly vexing problem on a software, you know, piece of software. They say, "Oh, I wonder. I guess a lot of other people are having trouble with this too." And without any kind of coercion or or, you know, any kind of like gun to the back of the head kind of thing. They go and make a helpful and well-organized video on how to solve this problem. For free. For free, which they narrate and then and then post on a YouTube right. channel. There's tons of it. And then the it's other... sort of like Wikipedia contributions. Right, right. No, it's it's amazing. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, you can do this for anything. I, you know, I, I installed a radio in my car based on a guy right. who did this. Right. I had a plumbing problem and... And, uh, you know, I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I, I, I Googled it on YouTube. There was a plumber, a guy who gets paid to fix this problem. He said, you got this problem? You got kids in the house? 
you got an action figure. That, <laughs> Batman, Batman has gone scuba diving. And he was right. I got a wire hook and I pulled out a stormtrooper out of my plumbing. Right? This guy did this for nothing. I'm gonna, I mean, I want to meet this guy and buy him a beer at some point in my life. Right? He lives in the Southwest. Great guy. Right? I owe him, I owe him hundreds of dollars. Right? But he did this for free. And then in the end, what happened? Well, in the end, it turns out that that um, that you know that remember that I think the description I said I wish a genie would show up and, and fix this problem right now. Yeah. No one wants a genie in their house. <laughs> no one wants it. You, you think about it. If you were like changing a light bulb, it's just and a little creepy. It's a little creepy yeah. to have a genie, yeah. like a big tall bald dude, show up. <laughs> for for those of you listening at home, okay in my house. <laughs> listening at home, this Stephen uh, Stephen represents. If you put, if, I'm a big tall bald guy. If you had, if you had curly pointed shoes on, <laughs> uh, she does not. For the record. Um, the mistake that we made was really not understanding how private a space yeah. your computer desktop is. Yeah. And that ookiness. So we kind of, I mean, to be honest, I, I, I fault myself for this. People would, we, when we were testing our beta testing and stuff, people would say, oh, they're, t- they're using my, they took over my computer. I don't like that. Yeah. And I said, well, people do it in corporate environments all the time. But you know what the right. difference there is? It's not your computer. Did you not pay attention to that? Or is it in retrospect, you're remembering those comments? I, in retrospect, I'm remembering those comments and I poo-pooed them. I yeah. think I, I, yeah. I developed, uh, you know, even though I'm not an engineer, I think I developed a little bit of tech contempt, yeah. which is a killer, a killer. Tech yeah. contempt is a killer of of good ideas. Because tell, tell me what you mean by that. Tech contempt is people, civilians, normal people, non-techie people come up with an objection to an idea. And we techie, technophilic <laughs> people say, nah, it's not, you don't have to worry about that. Do do you think now, if you were doing it again with what you've learned, you'd hear those objections, or would you? My my own gut is I would still not hear them. So this is the beauty of working for other people's pro on other people's problems <laughs> is that I can totally suss out their problem. That's right. great. It's like anything, you know. You're not listening to your focus groups, right? Right. 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 Let me tell you what's wrong with your marriage, buddy. right? You know what I mean? Like that's that's the problem. It's like is right. it you? Uh, you know, you, yeah. you, it's always easy to to see other people and be objective yeah. about other people, which is yeah. why. You should hire people like Flying Car to come in and help you out because that you know if I had hired myself or a, a proxy of myself, right. we would have been in a different position. And what's the website again? Uh, just flyingcarboston.com. There you go. Yeah. So in the end, what happened? How did you know it was time to shut down? Oh well, so we had we again. I, I feel like we were fairly reasonable about this. I mean, I know so many people working in and out of the Cambridge environment that have lost you know shirts and shoes and stuff, or wound up basically getting bought out or even leaving and, and really wound up owing money after their even after right. their startup got bought or, or whatever and it was you know it was uh it's 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 not you, you you hear a lot about i think this is also the point of the podcast which is why i love the premise of the podcast is you hear about all the successes yeah. it's like the nfl right you hear about everybody got into the nfl but you don't hear about the thousands and thousands, thousands and thousands that, that didn't make it didn't make right. it right so you've yeah. got to take it in you know is we, we we live for the special case right right and so um, so we had a runway and we said, look, when it gets to this point, uh, you know, it's a sunk with the sunk cost fallacy, right? You know, right. We, we've sunk enough cost into this thing and we're, you know, we're not going to lose our houses. We're not going to lose our, 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 our shirts on this whole thing. Um, but, but <laughs> we wind up getting an email from this company that took $12 million to build a similar thing. So they've got your idea and they've got money they've got and right. you've got stuff that's better than theirs in some ways. Our tech is better. Their yes. look and feel is better than ours. They've got the money to build. So one of the problems right. with any so of they're these. they're prettier. One of these network yeah. deals is it's a chicken and the egg problem. And all the, the potential, you know, the, the VCs told us this. They're like, look at this, look, networks, these, right. these social network things are a chicken and egg problem. They're only valuable when there's a lot of people there. So for us, there really had to be this network of people to make it valuable. And we didn't have the money to build a network, but they did. They had the money to build a network. We had the tech. And so. So they could have taken some of their money. And when you say build the network, that means get experts online waiting right. for the call. Right. To go, I'm your Photoshop guy or I'm right. your. Right, that, right. That guy, you needed to put those people in place so your customers would come and go, oh, there's already people waiting to help me. So we did that. We, we, tried, we hired a few people off of Craigslist to do become, yeah. to become, uh, we, we tried to focus on Excel, to become Excel experts. And we kind of, we started it. We just didn't have the money. By this time, we were so far down our runway. Right. It was like, you know, oh man, this is way this, bigger. This other companies got the money. They got the money. They right. got the money to do this. And so they wanted to have a call. And so we were going to have a call the next day. Right. And this is where I will admit that we got into the, okay, okay. If they offer us 12 million, don't <laughs> say because they have 20. And like, we got into like the pie in the sky, like. Yeah, this is great. And it's after so much work, we were going to get out of this thing for real. Thank goodness. This is great. This is like, oh, we're, you know, like the, 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 right. the you know, we couldn't sleep. Why else like, could they be calling except to try and would they be calling? Buy, buy your stuff? If they were going to tell us to shut down, they would have been a lawyer. Right, wouldn't, exactly. They wouldn't have exactly. called. Exactly. Right? They would not have called. Right. right. So this is good. They've got to be wanting something from us. And so then so the time for the call comes and we're sitting there on the right. phone and we're all nervous and stuff. And uh, 
and the, the the lead person, the CEO of their company, and I, I will admit this again. I meant I I find myself trying to you know to be okay with you know with with uh, with again. I'm, I don't I don't like people who rag on millennials. I don't like it because you know I feel like as a Gen Xer that's not okay. And uh, and but I, I like millennials. I like a lot of things about how they are and what they do. And, and certainly we built the world that they're responding to. I mean, there's a lot of the stuff out there. But one thing I will admit having a difficult time with are young women. Who ended every question with a question mark, and who who speak and and they're again they're from California and this woman I'm sure went to Stanford and probably is an engineer and has far more ability than I will ever have in terms of her ability to have so she's probably a, a multi zillion she'll hear this podcast and come ruin me now right because she's probably started five companies right since then but but she's on the call and this is and now it's like okay we have the assistant this is her assistant. Of so no, this is her. This is the person, and so so she's 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 doing that thing, which is you know which which already is, hard to deal with. It's already yeah. hard to deal right. with, you know. It, it, and so I, so we're, so, but she's talking. But you're thinking, I will sell to someone who speaks like this. Whatever, right. man. Whatever. Right. When do we get to the money part of this conversation? And they start talking about how hard it is and how it's really challenging, and they are really. Happy. And so it turns out that we come to realize that this call is. They're asking us for free advice on how to fix <laughs> the same problem that we're having, that they're having with $12 million that we're having with $12, <laughs> with $12 and 83 cents that were the couch cushions. And, uh, and so they're having trouble. And did you guys come up with any solutions for this? And, you know, and, and so like, so they're not going to buy us. They think we may want to buy them. And they're about to shut down. They're out. Their runway is over. They've blown $12 million of some VC's money out there, which, you know, I'm sure it was, you know, whatever. Oh, when, once I got over, once I got over her thing, she's wicked nice, actually. Really yeah. nice person. We actually yeah. kept touch for, for a couple of, a couple of like a year or two afterwards. And we yeah. see each other on LinkedIn and stuff. But, uh, and I hope she's done well. But, um, but you know, but but really, it turned into uh, we just let the the, the techie contempt fly. Our, how stupid are people? How stupid are people? They don't get it. I'm. Why don't they get it? Right? They're just dumb. They're just it's dumb. It's a great idea. It's a great idea. So it's we we had like idea. a we had a we had a we had a session about how dumb people are that they didn't think our brilliant idea. We became one company all of a sudden. Our brilliant idea. You know, and we and then and then we we hung up the call and we all. Went out and turned got, off lights. Got drunk. Right? <laughs> turned off lights. And, you know, like, you know, grabbed the toner cartridges out of the uh, copier because those are worth 60 bucks. And ran for the streets. Oh, Lord. Yep. I'm Stephen Mark Volz, and you're listening to Disaster, the podcast. Let me... Um... Let me ask you about the the blog you've done. So you you were one of the co-founders of the Gloucester Clan, which I think I said is one of my the, the best local blogs I've ever seen or read. What have you tried at the Clan that hasn't worked? So what's funny is I, I started the blog to write about the things that I really like and am passionate about. And so my my favorite sort of you know the, the two things I really like are uh, for folks who know obviously the Onion right is a, is a great yep. sort of satirical kind of. Kind of a you know website, and then if you haven't read it, McSweeney's net.net is yep. just fantastically well written stuff. It's really, to me, what I think is the best stuff. So I was trying to sort of take a nerd turn on some of that stuff, and I wrote these. I, I oh god, they were hysterical. Please look them up at theclam.com. Uh, <laughs> Gloucester Clam. Gloucester Clam. They've got five hits, and they're just waiting for like one <laughs> other person to come. And I would be writing these pieces on, like for instance, I've, uh, I'm sure all of your listeners, Stephen, remember the uh, the scene in The Empire Strikes Back when Princess Leia. Uh, is is, uh, is is giving the briefing to the X-wing pilots as they're getting ready to leave the frozen moon uh, uh, that's under attack, uh, you know, and right. of Hoth, ice ice moon of Hoth, and she's saying, you know, uh, we're going to we're going to leave, and two X-wings are going to guard each transport as they leave, and one of these pilots speaks up and says, two X-wings against a star destroyer, that's suicide." <laughs> And like I, I was just like I, I, I saw the the piece that I wrote, which I thought was the funniest thing that I've ever written, was was basically that brief, the after briefing of that from the the wing commander going, "You do not talk to General Leo Organa like that. She is our commander and a member of the royal family. If she says fly against a star destroyer, you fly against a star destroyer. Oh, and did you notice that there's an ion cannon? Do you even look out the window when we fly around? Right, you know. So like I, this was to me. I'm, I laugh, I like it. It's I laugh myself silly writing it. Yeah, you're you're, you're, the, you're the you're the sixth person who clicked on it. Right. So that stuff was just I thought that stuff was funny. It was great. I loved writing it. It was I loved reading it. It was totally non-offensive. No swear. Yeah, it didn't work. No one cared. No one cared. You guys took a definite. We've got a style. We're going to be ourselves. This is what we're going to say. Yeah. And not worry about how we say it. Right. Right. That we you know, we we would say totes. 
instead of totally. And you know, right. we would we would you know we would we tried to use the term weasel. Can I say ask on on the podcast? Yes, you can. Okay, I, yes, I try to say the term weasel is as much as possible. As the clam readership grew, Jim's customers, his readers, began telling him in significant numbers about a big problem they had with his product. It was the language. What was what was amazingly funny was uh, at, at that point was how many people took umbrage with our style. Yes. Right. And uh, first of all, KT goes by KT, and there was a lot of KT oh, right. young man. <laughs> right. You need to uh, you need to clean up your language and not you know and not and if you you know you want to report the stories and it was just there was so and, much finger and just wagging for, for listeners. The, the K I think is for Kathleen. Right. It's for yes, Kathleen. Right. Yeah, KT. <laughs> Right, so listen here, young sir, and then they were calling me young man. You know, it's born during the Johnson administration. Okay, so I'm not going to say anymore. Right, so uh, it's a narrow city year. So, so uh, you know, they were calling me young man, and so that was kind of funny. And and so, but but just the, the amount of umbrage that people took, so again, much pushback, even from people we knew well. You know, like this is, yeah. you know, like you know, you, you know, you're, you're you're lowering the standards of journalism. So here's the question: Was this a failure? Complaints pouring in that what you're doing is lowering the standards of journalism. Remember, Jim just told me that the reason he thought his startup help guest failed was because he didn't listen to the feedback he was getting from his users. Here with the Gloucester Clam blog, he's getting user feedback again. Should he pivot? Should he adjust his approach and clean up the language in the blog? Well, one thing about Jim is, Jim likes to go out and get actual data, which is exactly what he did here. Because analytics were so powerful, we could A/B test stories. Yes. So we A/B test so tested stories that had curse Let words just in them. Stop for a second. Explain, oh, sorry. Explain what A/B testing. Oh, A/B testing is when you take two different of similar things and you change one parameter and see which one does better in terms of its return. So you guys could, for example, put up a story without the swear words, and then every other viewer would see one with the curse that's, words, and you could see what the uptake was. That's correct. So we could do A/B. Yeah. It allows you to A/B test. The same story, and you can see which ones got forwarded. And we we lived and died by Facebook forwards right. and people who linked out and stuff. And you have the Google provides you with the ability to do all this. And we decided that for every F word was worth about between uh, between sixteen and thirty five hits. You could you could reliably <laughs> count even on a small right. hit environment. You could always rely on a, on that for a curse word. Jim figured out that in order to give his readers what they wanted, he had to ignore what they were saying. And instead, look at what they were doing. And he had really good data on that. He figured out that including a few four-letter words here and there was actually great for readership. And using that information, they went on to do a series that got the tiny Gloucester clam national attention and millions of views. So, so what we found, what you said was successful was, so we... Uh, you know, suddenly uh, the market basket had protesters out in front of it, and there was someone was buying market, or they're selling market basket, or there was some problem. And uh, KT, who's a great writer and just a generally brilliant and funny person uh, totally. overall, right? And she's yes. just hysterical. Decided to she taken a course on it in business school, and she uh, she said, "Oh, this is a great story," and it involved she had a, like a case study in business school about the earlier fights that the market basket family had. Is that right? And so everyone, and this is the thing, right? Everyone, so here it's our grocery store. A lot of people work there. It's a sort of a center of the community in a lot of ways, and no one's telling the story about the hookers <laughs> because the paper is telling the story of a conflict between two families with legal stuff. There's just hookers. There are hookers in the story. There are hookers in the story. You need to know that there are hookers involved, right? And so, like, who doesn't want to hear about the hooker? Part of this whole thing, right? So, and that was just a piece of it. The hook, the hookers. No, was it's a good, just a piece of it. Oh, there yeah. was exactly, and it was it wasn't hooker either. And it was so it was it, it was great to have, uh, you know, like I think that's what people started to attach themselves to is that this is, you know, these stories are big and they're rich and they're fun and just sort of celebrating. So, so just them. to back up, there was some great writing involved. I mean, that was that, that there was a whole backstory to the whole Demoulis family yes. that nobody knew except at least around here, except for KT, right. And she put together a really good back-to-back -back set of, of expla ex basically explainers that didn't pull any punches. Uh, uh, Stephen, it's a, a clamsplainer. A clamsplainer, yes, indeed. Clamsplainer TN. Yeah. TN. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so it was, it, it was hilarious to read, but also full of information. It was, I mean, right. that's one of the things she does. You guys both do so well. Let me step back for a minute here. I should correct what Jim said about hookers. As far as I've been able to find, there were strippers strippers who are also drug addicts, strippers who are also drug addicts who may have been paid to testify against family members about illicit affairs they've been having with said drug-addicted strippers, so draw your own conclusions here. But I haven't been able to confirm that there were actual hookers. The Market Basket soap opera was impressive. 
The small supermarket chain owned by the Demulis family was worth over a billion dollars, and the lying, cheating, and stealing that went on over the years between what came to be called George's side of the family and Mike's side of the family was epic. Here's a little bit from K.T. Toomey's Clamsplainer. In the 1990s, George's family gets tax notices about their sale of company stock. This immediately sets off their bull detectors because, to their knowledge, they hadn't sold any stock. So the family figures out what's going on and sues Mike. It takes years, and it's an insane court battle worthy of a goddamn lifetime special. Cousins punch each other in the back of courtrooms, and eventually a state policeman has to be present at every hearing to limit the punchings. Someone paid a stripper to testify against her ex-boyfriend. A juror offered to change his decision if he was given $220,000. Oh my God, my head hurts trying to explain this because it can't even be real, but it is. Two of the lawyers end up being disbarred at the end of the suit, and George's family is successful. Mike is found to have defrauded them out of $500 million, and the judge forces 51% of the company to be turned over to George's heirs. Is the Benny Hill theme playing in your head yet? So I had to bleep a few words there, but even with the bleeps, you get a good sense for both the kind of writing that was in the clam as well as the kind of thing people were complaining about. I love this story because it puts a really important gloss on the old adage, the customer is always right. Because the thing is, as Steve Jobs used to preach, the customer doesn't always know what he or she wants. And it's a great reminder to make decisions based on how people behave rather than on what they say. Jim figured out that to give his readers what they wanted, he had to ignore what a lot of them were saying and instead look at what they were doing. He figured out that including a few four-letter words here and there was actually great for readership. And using that information, they went on to do a series that got the tiny Gloucester clam national attention and millions of views. But even in that viral success, not everything went right. Of course, we had no advertising on the site. That was <laughs> stupid. Tell, tell like, me about it. Ray, oh, damn. I'm Stephen Mark Voltz, and you're listening to Disaster, the podcast. Next up, a magnificent true story of a $600 million failure Jim was an integral part of. And if you've never been inside the preparation of an ad agency pitch for a major account, it's worth listening to for that reason alone. As it draws towards the end, it's a mystical, almost religious process. So you've been in advertising in, in the Boston area for a while before starting Flying Car. Let me ask you this. What's the biggest mistake that you are either part of or you saw up close in your years in the business? Oh, God, there's so there's so many, Stephen. I don't know if they, I, how much, how much, how much storage space do they have here at the podcast studio? Is, is, is there a, but what's, what's one that comes to mind? So this is, oh, I mean, I, I have to say, so, so, so in the, in a big agency, you, you pitch, you're always yeah. pitching, right? And you're pitching these uh, accounts and it's always every, every uh, big account is going to change the face of the agency because these accounts literally run at a big agency in the 250 to $500 million range. And so we were pitching DHL. And so yeah. DHL was just launching in the U.S. I went overseas. We went to numerous of different different markets, talking to people who use DHL, what they liked about it, what they didn't like about uh, the other options. And we spent all kinds of time talking and creating stuff, and we made mock. And we built this thing. And what you're doing is you're building this RFP response package. This is all on spec, right? All on spec. Right. All on spec. We probably spent you know half a million dollars putting this thing out, flying people around. You build this box. That is the response. And it has all you, who your right. team is. and It has all the paperwork. It has the spec ads. It has videos in there. And it was just this whole thing. And the box is crafted and designed. And it's this big deal. And so we spent, you know, we probably you two. Mean a, a physical box? It's a physical box. Yeah, that that right. is the RFP response. Right. And again, you know, that, that, uh, that you send to them. And they open it up. And it's supposed to create wonder and delight. And there's all these consultants and stuff. And, we, you know, you, you're all putting. I mean, it's very sort of, you know, sort of supernatural, magical. You're putting all this effort into the box. It feels like you're, you're like. I almost think this is like what it was like building Stonehenge. So how long is the process of pitching an account like that? Right, right. So there's this, so this whole thing used to be structured by consultants, right? So the, the, the big brand hires a consultant, a pitching agency, and all they do is they run this process. So there's an, there's an RFP, a request for proposal from this particular client, a big, huge client out there, right? So it's a big car company. So it's Toyota or it's Ford or it's you know Budweiser, or in this case, it was DHL. And DHL put this huge RFP out there. It was $600 million of, of advertising work of which the agency would receive, you know, a massive percentage of that. 
And what, what would that have meant to your agency? So the agency had just lost a $400 million account, right? And there had been layoffs and there had been a bunch of stuff. And, and the was, agency, that, was that big for your agency? That was big. That was the biggest. That was the flagship. They call it the flagship account. Right? That's so what that's everybody like wants. landing the whale when you catch one of those. Right. Guys. That's what everybody wants. And that's where you're hiring people and where you're... The value of the agency is going up and all that stuff. So, so you guys had lost $400 million and you were hoping to replace it with one at 600 That's right. Okay. That is right. This is almost like a game show. It's like if you hit, <laughs> you throw your hands up in the air and run down the aisle and everyone's like... I've, I've been Doo-doo. around I've been around a couple of wins. And, <laughs> What's that like? Oh, uh, I mean, it is like like literally booze is ordered for the entire there's agency. Drinking there's involved. tons <laughs> of drinking. By this time, based on my role, I'm so exhausted that all I want to do is lay down and die. Right. You know, it's so like I'm behind a file cabinet just wanting to die right, at that but, point. But a month before that, when things are looking good, you've got a pitch you like, you like your package, like your RFP. Yeah. What, what's that going to mean for you? Uh, what was it going to mean for my life if yes. we win? Yes. Oh, God. You know, so what that means for me is, A, is job security. Right. Remember, because this is right. a volatile. When you lose pitch, people get fired. When right. you win, people don't. And then it also increases my value. Right. So I work in Boston. I work on Boston. So I work on Cape Cod potato chips, Sam Adams beer, right. you know, Dunkin' Donuts. Right. So you work on the Boston stuff that Boston right. works on. Right. Would you get a bonus or a kick up? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You'd be a bonus. There'd be a kick up. There'd be just everything. And, and again, most importantly, though, is that your value increases. When you sit down right. next time to say you're, you're a person who won, if you were on that team, right. you're the kind of person who can win big business. Right. And it's all very magic and voodoo oriented. You know what I mean? Right. He's got the magic, you know, right. kind of thing. And that's so my next my next review looks really different than if we lost it. Well, you know, there's no money around. Right. I'm sorry, we can't really do much for you this year. We'd love to help. We're going to, we're going to give you a new title as opposed to <laughs> I'm talking zeros. Right. I am talking right. zeros. Yeah. So what was that going to mean for you at home? Were you going to, if that came through, had you spent that money in your head yet? Uh, yeah, we were going to buy a house. We were renting. Yeah. I was going to, yeah, we were going to buy, guess, yeah. we were going to buy a house and we were living so in my, huge step. We were, we were in my uncle's building living upstairs next to heroin <laughs> dealers. <laughs> We were going to move away from the heroin dealers. These were unpleasant heroin dealers. So they were, yeah. yeah. So if, if you hit this big for the agency, big for your career, and also you move away from the heroin dealers yep. and you buy your own house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge. No, not that, and you know, like, not that anyone was depending on that. I just, I would always say, and it's just amazing. This is sort of the part, I mean, what's interesting about sort of, I think the theme of, of the, of, of your, your effort here in the podcast in general is when you are, everyone tells you to think success, think success, think success, and so you do. It's like buying a lottery right. ticket. No one ever buys a lottery <laughs> ticket and thinks, you know, when I lose, it's going to be fine. <laughs> you can't help it. You right. can't help it. You know, you you are driving in your mind. You are driving that Rolls Royce right. Silver Ghost to the convenience store, <laughs> <laughs> right? To buy more lottery tickets. To get some right. Slim Jims right. and whatever else you want to get. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Once you've been qualified, you have this series of meetings. The first one is a, uh, it's a called a chemistry check, right? And everyone gets together and they meet and everyone shakes hands and we talk about stuff. And you're not supposed to show any work because you're not really supposed to show oh, everyone shows work. You always bring work. You always bring some work, right? And there's competitive stuff and you're sneaking around and you're Sne- sneaking around because you don't want. The guy you have a beer with after work to know what you're working the on. Other agencies want to know right. what you're working right. at. So right. when we would do focus groups, we'd be in a focus group facility uh, in New York City, and everyone goes to New York, or Chicago. Everyone goes to Chicago. It's the center of the country, right? right? And if you use this one focus group facility, you know that they were probably there before you. So you go through the trash and see if their stuff's in the trash <laughs> to see if there's, anyone's left anything behind. And maybe you'll talk to the girl. Hey, did they show any work? Did they leave anything behind? Because no, So like that's the kind of stuff right. you would do. And then eventually there would be a big... Reveal and these things were gigantic. I mean, it was a show. It really was a show. So, other than you and the agency, if you guys landed that account, whose life in that agency would change? Everyone. Well, primarily the uh, the, the partners. Right. Right. The partners are, are all they're all incented based on the billings of the agency. Right. right? So, so what, how would that? What would that mean? In so so my direct terms? report. My direct report probably would have gone from making you know a mere uh, you know passable two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year to something like you know something close to half a million, right? So just that, from one account. From one from that one account, right? And then So he can move his house, he can get a boat, he can, all that just with this one account. Just with this one account. And then also that also makes their value because they've worked on a global brand. Right. So now again we're in Boston, right? Oh, we're in Boston, right? You're a little company from Boston. Suddenly now you can you're getting calls from New York City. Right. You're getting calls from, from LA and Chicago and London. San Francisco maybe, right? is actually where oh, everybody right. wanted to go right. at that point, right? right? And then then London is the right. other place right. as well. So like those are the you're, you're, you've just moved up from second-tier city Boston to the real game. How long did it take for you guys to put together your pitch? 
pitches usually took something like on the order of a couple of months, okay. and it's all hands on deck. So the agency stops work basically to do the pitch. It doesn't stop work. It just doubles the work, right? right? Okay. But but yes, yep. pitching comes first. All right. So how is the RFP put together? Just as a quick overview of what that looks like. And again, we're talking about a historical period here, right? right? Yeah. This is a, this yep. is a Ken Burns kind of environment. This is like <laughs> this is a, this is the early two thousands, right? And so the way that this worked back in the day is it was all. Like that, and for the, our younger viewers, it was our, our, our <laughs> listeners. It was physical. Right. You would construct a physical response to the RFP. We were qualified to the RFP, which said you guys will be allowed to compete. Right. So put together all of your stuff into a physical response to the RFP. Right. Now, because agencies are creative, you never just send them an envelope like here you go, right. here it is. It's in a right. you know it's in a you know it's in a um, like a mailer from the post office right. or something like that. <laughs> you construct one, and again the, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars. A consultant's just on the thing for that the you box. send it in. It's, I mean, yeah, yeah, or the for envelope the or whatever. Right? The envelope. So I just uh, one time I, I pitched Subaru, yeah. right, uh, many many years ago. And that's, again, for those of your l- listeners who are as old as you and I are, you remember the old Subarus because Stephen and I spent a lot of time in Maine. You would open up the hood, the Subaru. What would be there? You remember? The spare tire was on right, top, right of, on the top of the engine. Yes, on top that's of the right. engine. That's right. So I actually, this was my contribution to the Subaru pitches. I actually went and I convinced the consultant that we got a wheelbarrow tire. <laughs> so the, the top of the box actually looked like a Subaru hood right. with a Subaru emblem, emblem on it. And when you opened it up, there was a wheelbarrow. An actual wheel. Tire tire there, and we knew thing. they would get it. Right. It was great. It was an inside joke at two. We understood the brand. Right. And that's the whole point. And then inside of there are... There's documentation. There's work. There's reports. Usually. Work meaning storyboards and storyboards. videos or what? there's there's yeah the storyboards. There's there's work a lot of so back in the, back in the day again I'm going to say that again, the print ads was kind of where everything landed. So you yeah. would always center everything on print, but there'd also be a video tape. Tape. Eventually a v- DVD uh, that 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 also included like spec commercials that you'd made. Again, we spent we spent million two so million you guys bucks. Bought studio space. And, yeah. And- Creative directors oh, yeah. and, uh, and there's, art, art directors and all that, actors. We've uh, also done focus groups. So there's edits of the focus group work. This right. actually happened for this pitch. We had edits of the focus group of people saying right. what they wanted and why it worked. And we spoke to folks. And there was, you know, there was a mood video, a mood video. You okay, know, like, what's a mood video? A mood video. You've probably seen this a thousand times, like picture of a city at night and like sort of a <laughs> slow motion <laughs> planes flying across the sky. And, and a deep resonant voice says, connectivity. The world works when everyone can talk to everyone else. Little jazz piano, little jazz piano, and then, and then, and then, and then a, 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 you know, a, a multi, a multi ethnic family walks out of a house holding hands, and everyone talks, but everyone also must listen. You know, and like, and right. you know, we always produce those things. They were right. great. Yeah, yeah, they were very effective because if you did that right for the brand, it would say that you got it, got who they are, you yeah. got who they got were, and, and you didn't just disperse it with quotes from the focus groups and stuff. Yeah. All right, so describe your box. Okay. All right. So this is DHL. Folks know DHL, right? Yeah. So you're trying to find a signature thing about DHL that everyone recognizes. Yeah. So it's yellow. For this point, there, no one knew what DHL was. Right. You, know, um, you know, I had spent some time in Asia, so I did know them. So I was on the pitch because I was the Asia guy. Right. And um, one of the things that, that you, if you were to say DHL, if I say to you now, what's the first thing that pops into your head? Deliveries. Deliveries, like, right. right. Overnight delivery. Yeah. Yellow. The truck yellow is red, yellow, yeah. But yeah. overnight deliveries. And they had these box trucks. Right. That were all over the place. Right. And the box trucks have a roll-up door. Right. Right. Which is this fiberglass door that you roll up. It's kind of like an accordion door. You know what I'm talking about? Right. But it rolls up on the back. Like a garage door, but on. But like, but like a roll-up. You know right. what I mean? Like it's kind of like a, right. yeah, like a blind right. kind of thing. Right. 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 The, yeah. Yeah. So, right. so we actually built the box to look like it had rivets and everything out of that sort of uh, same fiberglass material as right. the box truck, right. and then it had the roll-up door. Right. And you could actually <laughs> roll the thing up, and it was cool. Rolled up and rolled up, and it kind of looked like the back of a DHL truck okay. with a DHL. Well, this is your idea, right? I, 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 yes. You had something. I, could, I did, yeah. I could just tell the way you're talking about it. This, yeah, yeah, exactly. it, is, it is a great idea. Well, because no one had seen these trucks. Because right. like, at this point, DHL was not big right. in the U.S. yet, and so I had DHL been. DHL had seen, knew their trucks, but no one else had. Right. And it would help for them to know that you know that level of who they are. The little vinyl strap, you know, right. little, little little strap right. there that the guy uses to hold yes. it. That was, that was right. there. It was, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So how big is this box? So this box, I would say, is, oh, gosh, I'm going to say it's about the size of, like, uh, two record albums, uh, 
in, in sort of size, right? And right. then in depth, I would say it's probably like six or eight inches in depth, gotcha. right? So it's right. a sizable package, right. but it's supposed to have, like they call it, table presence. I mean, there's a whole consulting right. business around <laughs> constructing these things. I don't know if they still exist, right? Everyone, right. everyone probably just sends PowerPoint. For virtual, now, right? Oh, yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. But but back in the day, this was the thing that you sent. It was really, right. it was quite fun. I mean, it was really, yeah. it was like, it had sort of like so I, religious overtones, you know, like, like you were saying, the Ark of the Covenant was be, be carried in front of the, you know, the, yeah. How did this get physically? How, who made it? How did that happen? Oh, yeah, yeah. So you, there's artists. You, you, there's a shop in New York City, like in the in the meatpacking district, and you all go down there and you meet with the consultants. And you there's always like a very long-limbed woman who doesn't talk, who like just sits there listening the entire time, you know. And she's like wearing a single muslin garment and she's like drinking some weird tea that smells weird. And like, you know, and she's like, you know. She's going to put this thing together, and they have right. a shop and a studio, and they send you diagrams, and you get photographs of how it's being built. So and stuff. they they basically show do the same process for you that you're doing for the agency. They show you drawings and and comp- right. what right comprehensives or whatever that right right right. But they're <laughs> the actual executors. But they, they get paid by the hour they, or, or they by the it. by the project as opposed to on spec. Right. So these people had tattoos before tattoos were cool. <laughs> like, there was like amazing eyewear. It was it was these guys were super super cool. All right. So what was your pitch? What was the what was the the the, the thing about your pitch that you were hoping would make it take? Right. The whole point for DHL was global network. It was about global. Yeah. It was being connected to this global network. And the difference between the, you know, UPS, which was kind of every man, brown, trustworthy, right, because everywhere kind of thing. Right. And then uh, then, then FedEx had, had cut into that business with this absolutely has to be their overnight kind of concept. Their whole concept in the delivery space was sort of the IBM concept, which is if you hire us, it's our fault because we're the most reliable one, right? right? And that, that's been theirs for a long time. They did a great job with that, and that was really good. So DHL had to compete with two very successful companies already doing what they did, and the U.S. mail, right? right? And the way they did it was this was the early 2000s when global had just started to become meaningful, right. and you needed to have global partnerships, right. and they had added tracking. And I know this sounds like a big thing, but they had global tracking, which wasn't available, right. and you could get tracking. I, actually, I remember that you couldn't get global tracking on... A lot of the, uh, the companies. Could right? not get global tracking. And so that they had global the ability to get global tracking, the ability to actually see that stuff through the right. internet, you know, which was a little <laughs> nascent at that point. Right. And the idea that you could actually like see and track and then and then see how things you actually compare routes and all this kind right. of stuff. So that was the big thing. It was about it was about um, really about uh, because the internet and shipping was starting to, to not for companies because everyone was still using UPS to actually get things from Amazon or whatever, but the fact that if you were a company that was dependent on shipping something critical, that in a global network this was the place to right. go. And how did you guys come to that decision? So me, this was actually my job again. So I uh, I was a strategist. I flew to Chicago, and you would recruit. Um, like a dozen people um, from different companies that were in the global economy, and they would sit down. So Chicago at the time, Boeing was there. They're not there anymore, but right. uh, but they were there. And I so I, I spoke to people at Boeing who were had critical parts they needed yeah. sent all over the world. Yeah. And I said, "How do you get them there?" And they all used FedEx. I'm like, "Well, what do you? How do, I mean, do you guys have like a, any processes that right. that that are?" That are you know that are critical. You don't know if the thing is coming or not. And these guys all like started mopping their brows and like <laughs> and like you know and it turns into a therapy session. You know and like you know which you is when you've got pay dirt, right? Which, which is when you got pay dirt. And they're like, look, right. you know, I I got a I got a I got I got five hundred, you know, pieces that all have to come together in this one thing. And I've got fifty guys and I've got a plane sitting there and I've got you know. The U.S. Air Force, who thinks this thing is showing up, but they're they're tarmac, and you know, and like and they start telling you their story, right? right. So we can now tell that story right. um, through our creative, and and that's so the, it was those talking to real people, yeah, interviews that led to your the theme for your pitch, and your pitch ended up in that magic box that that's how the it's long limbed woman from the meatpacking district put together. Done if it's done correctly, yeah. that's yeah. that's how yeah. it's done. You're there to uh, you're there to. Um, you're there to, to to take the stories up from the world and to actually turn that into um, into into creative into insight. Right. How did you like your chances? Oh, I again, I, I thought that uh, this was gonna this was gonna be the biggest thing because the the way that the global thing worked and like how do you bring global home to Chicago? How does that matter? Well, you know that guy's a dad. You know that he's got kids. He's he's got he's he's trying to make work in the global economy. And we had the whole thing was based on this idea of of of, of real Americans who are now tied to the global economy and how are we going to tie Bob from up the street into the global economy, you know, and the the whole idea of like, you know, we're all going to work together with everyone all over the world and DHL is going to be the one that ties us all together. It's not going to be the internet. It's going to be the, it's going to be DHL. All right. So what's it like 
uh, in the hour or so before you ship? Who have to sign off? Who have to look at it? What was what's that process like? So this it's usually like a sort of chill. Like it's funny as you think it's going to be like kind of crazy down to the wire and yeah. stuff. But usually like you know the morning of you know when you're getting ready to ship, actually everything's pretty much done. And yeah. stuff's usually coming out of the printer at that point. Right. Stuff's out of the printer. It's been proofed. Yeah. There's we had this very old former English teacher who was our our, our proofreader, and she was there, and so she's right. just sitting in the corner, and like she's like the the last person everything right. has to go through, and she right. looks to make sure there isn't a spelling error because a spelling a comma in the right. wrong place, anything will, you know, let's assume that you will lose the pitch at that point. They can't even get the spelling right. And so once she looks at it, it gets packaged. People are literally wearing gloves, putting things, white right. gloves, putting things into this Ark of the Covenant, you know, that is our magic right. box that's going to carry it forward. And, uh, and then it's sealed up. And there you go. It's ready to go. And the account team's sort of standing around, and it's sitting in the middle of, like, the big conference room table. Right. And it's ready to go. And you'll even get, you'll even get like, weird calls, like, if you know, Hey Jim, before you leave, um, the, it's getting ready to ship. I just I don't know if you wanted to come down before we send it out. Like, <laughs> just look, look at the box. Have an audience, <laughs> like you know, like an audience right. with it. You know, like you know, it's yeah. I'm Stephen Mark Volz, and you're listening to Disaster. So it sounds like everything's going pretty darn well with this pitch, doesn't it? Well, there's still one more little thing to do. We got the box, and and it was great. And they handed it to an intern, and she FedExed it. <laughs> She FedExed the DHL response box <laughs> to DHL. <laughs> Let me stop for a second yeah, yeah. and have you explain why that was such a catastrophe. Because right. there's this game in advertising, and not so much in other businesses, that you have to only use the client's product for whatever you're doing. Talk about that a little bit. So, so this all goes back to um, a guy named... David Ogilvy. Uh -huh. Okay, so if any of you are interested in advertising, you've got to read David Ogilvy's Ogilvy on Advertising. And I actually uh, worked for Ogilvy and Mather worldwide. Yeah. And he actually did speak like this. <laughs> he actually spoke like this. Uh, you know, he, he wore an ascot. And he and there's these, all these old inspirational films of him speaking. And he would say, <laughs> you know... Most in black and white, all the stuff I've all, seen. All in black, black and white. And white. It's yeah. all black and white. And he would say things like, he was like, think, you know... Uh, you know uh, Remember that the client is not a fool. The client is your wife in Topeka. And like you would just say this weird thing, like these, like, and they're all like, you know, they're just these things. I want to stop for a minute just to appreciate how good Jim's David Ogilvy impression is. It sounds a bit over the top, but I was curious. So I went to YouTube to see what I could find. And almost the first thing I came up with was this Jim. The musical fanfare in the original was actually much longer. I wish I could be with you today in the flesh, as they say. Unfortunately, I'm in India. Listening to the man himself, I think Jim actually underplayed it. I don't want to suggest that David Ogilvy was anything less than a brilliant advertising guy. He was larger than life and a true advertising pioneer in more ways than I can count. Still, there's no denying he was a bit of a character. Now back to the interview. One of them was, always use your client's products. Right. And that is... That is religion right. in advertising. Now, what, I just stop for a second. When I heard that or read that, I don't think I ever heard him say it. When I read that, I assumed it was so you understand where they're coming from and how the, so you know the product and you can write copy for it or write, write, create, do creative exactly. for it. I, but I think that's gotten turned into don't let your client ever see you. Uh, I, I got a friend who, who was an intern for a law firm once or agency, a small agency, and they were pitching a, a Pepsi for some small piece of. And he, they came to the clock, the office once, and he had gone at lunch and had a Coke. Oh, dude. And they almost lost the account because my friend at 18 was drinking a Coke in the Pepsi pitch. And I, so, not in the pitch, in the mailroom. So, dude, Hill Holiday downtown, yeah. and, which was downtown in Boston for a long time, had Dunkin' Donuts. That was their flagship account right. for a long time. And, of course, you know, all the 22-year-old... <laughs> Folks go across the street to Starbucks, right? right? And they come back with Starbucks, and they would get slapped, slapped out of their, their hands. hands. Yes, right. You know, there's like there's there's somewhere there are there are young advertising executives with like second degree burns on Marks, their arms, permanent scars on their forearms. They literally, they literally. This is not not a lie. On Boylston Street, there there are Dunkin's cups behind the counter of Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I am not I am not kidding about this. And you would say, I work for Hill, and they would go, all right, and they would hand you the Duncan's Cups. Your yeah. latte, your tall yep. 
mm-hmm. half calf latte with a and this this is a pink and purple. A for real thing. And the yes. clients know it and right. you know it and everybody knows it. You right. use their services. Right. And only their services. And only right. their services or their right. products, right? right? And like you know, it doesn't obviously if it's Jaguar, not everyone drives a Jaguar, right. but the CEO better drive a Jaguar. Right. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? So that's that's the pitch. And yeah. it's looking good, it's feeling good. Yeah. You give us the intern, say, get this what it needs to get. Well, I, was, I want to make it perfectly clear that I was gone at this point. <laughs> so where were you? I was on my way home. I was on my way ah, home. Right. Yeah, my, my, uh, my, you know, my, my, I, had a, I had a small child at home, and right. I, was, I wanted to get home to get... Your work was done. My work was done. I wanted to get there before the Heron dealers woke up and uh, <laughs> started playing their music. Um, so, so how did you find out what happened? Um, so it didn't... It, no one knew that it happened. Right. So it wasn't like it happened and then people right. knew, right? So, so I believe that this was a Saturday afternoon when the thing finally got shipped. We made the shipping deadline, yeah. right, to get it out the door on the Saturday afternoon, and then uh, I went home. You know, it's Sunday, yeah. and Monday, Monday morning, Monday morning, right. clacking away on the on the right. on the just on the, starting back to your regular work, regular work routine, life, right? and you know, right. like just trying to oh god, what did we spend on this? Starting to do the reports and right. stuff and billing and my, my expense reports or whatever, and I just start to hear this, this. Yelling! It what? It what? What? And like people are just was that usual? Was that unusual? That was that was unusual. Right. That was yeah. unusual. And they clearly weren't jubilant. You know, when you hear a yell, right. you're like, is that jubilant or not jubilant? And you know, you know, you know, lots of swearing. And you, oh my God, you're effing kidding me. This is you know. And then so like this is the stages of of, of grief start to sort of set in as to what. Has happened. So you don't know at this point what's going on, except you know something very bad has happened. Well, the, so this is the, this is sort of the the funny thing about how these companies work, right? So, uh, so the the assistant to the uh, to the to the CEO is from Gloucester, right. okay? Oh, okay? Yeah. Right. So I knew her, like she, yeah, we right. we had a long thing. So I, 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 uh, I wait a couple of minutes and I type on the I type on the, the phone thing. I'm like, so, uh, yeah, well, let's call her Marion, right. like. Uh, <laughs> Marion, what's going on up there? You know, my accent always <laughs> comes kicks out, in. Right. Comes out, right? Marion, what's going on up there? What's going on? Is everybody all right? Is everybody all right? And she's like, oh, Jim. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, Jim, Jim, you got to get up here. You got to get up here. I'm like, I'm not getting up there. I was going to say. I'm not going up there. Are you crazy? What happened? What happened? Is everything all right? Do we lose? How do we lose already? <laughs> right. And she says it. She says, she's the name of the intern, like whatever. Right. I forget her name, Carolyn, I think. Right. Carolyn FedExed it. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> she FedExed the box. And I knew it's like, what? <laughs> what? I mean, this girl is very smart. Went to be you, right, you know, right. very like intelligent young lady. I mean, she just. It, so, you find out Monday morning. When did they find out? Did they find out on the weekend or how? No, how, that's how, when how, I was there. Right. That that scream came when somebody went down. Went so like. <laughs> So this had must to, be like the receipt comes back or something. It was it was the, it was the mailroom guy comes back because he with, with the confirmation with saying the confirmation. You're, you're all set, guy. No, but he knew it was a problem, oh, so he, he knew, comes right. in. He comes in and he was crazy. He was uh, he was great. I mean, we loved him. So he walks cool. in. How did it go this weekend? Oh, great, everything was fine. He looks down and he sees that the FedEx receipt and he goes, right. Oh no, 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 no! And he goes running up to Power Alley, up to this alley up there right. with the receipt right. and Marion, and he tells Marion, and then everyone starts screaming. Right. I think his name was Ron. Right. So, he was amazing. Yeah. So what's the fallout? What's the what's the next okay. couple of days like? Okay, no, 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 no. Or, no it's not fallout. Okay, because nothing's ever done, right? Nothing's ever broken. Like, oops, I'm bumping things. I did the same, yeah. Yeah. Nothing's ever like this, remember, this is like these people are are can do action people right. that like right? Right, right. Okay. Never never say die. Never say die. Right. So here's the plan. Okay? There's always a plan. This is like the, the stages of grief. Right? We're in bargaining now. All right? Okay? Okay, so where's it going? It's not there yet, right? Because right. it's Because we launched it on Saturday. It's going to get there today. Right. They, I'm not making it up. They were going to get a private plane. They did. They got a private plane. Right. Okay? They knew someone who was a pilot. Right. And they got this kid from production. A known <laughs> scallywag from production. They gave him $5,000 in cash. And they flew him to Secaucus. They said, intercept it. You give that FedEx guy whatever he wants. Do you understand when I say whatever? That I mean whatever he wants. <laughs> right? You, this guy was the, we, the, uh, the, uh, the I wish to say, but he was the person who was known to be able to get anything, shall we say, at the agency. And uh, the yeah. Milo Mindbender, if you're familiar with Catch-22, he was that of the agency. 
and he was he was told to take his supplies or whatever he needed and to make any promise that was required to get that box away from the FedEx guy. They got him on a plane, a private plane, right. and started dashing him down towards Secaucus. And what happened? He missed the plane. I mean, he missed. Oh, he, the, he, missed he, he missed. He missed. He missed the. He didn't even get to make a make a pitch for it. He didn't make. It, it was already delivered. Right. It was already delivered. So how did you find that out? So then everyone's just sitting there watching the phone. <laughs> Everyone's just sitting there watching the phone, and this call comes from the, the guy the, the, who went down to intercept. They're like, I missed it. Right. I missed it. I, I, right. I did everything gone, I could. Right. did everything I could. So everyone just starts watching the phone, and then the phone rings, and it's the name of the consultant on the phone. And so the account the director the picks pitch, it up. The pitch consultant who brought you in. Yep. Yeah. The account director picks it up, and, and the first word that she said, the pitch consultant said was, Really? <laughs> Speech prepared, you know, everyone's sitting there sweating and speech prepared. You know, we're an agency that makes mistakes because everyone makes mistakes. But the most important thing about our culture is that we learn from our mistakes. You know, he's got like a little script and he's <laughs> no, dude, no. It's over. Oh god. Yeah. So, so what was it like after that call? Oh, it was it was it was awake. It was yeah. awake. I mean, it yeah. was it was it was you know the rending of clothes. You know. Hollowed out people walking around. It's worse, it's like people keep coming in, like, you know, it's Monday, the comps of time, like, them coming Monday at lunch, you know, like, hey, I'm here, how did it go? <laughs> That's not right. Don't say, please, just just don't, just don't right now. I just can't even, you know, and like, and so, so every, the word got out, and it was like sort of like informal kind of things, and it was really just like, and it was, it would have been okay if it had gone through, and because you, know, you lose these things all the time, right? right. And it's hard, right. and it's difficult, right. and that thing, but at least, you know, you got to play the game, but right. you know, can you imagine all that work? Yeah. And never get in the door at the end. Never get in the yeah. door for that reason, right. too. And, and, and then, you know, and you know, I'll be honest, the hardest thing is not the agency, because the agency's, it's when, it's, it's three weeks later when your aunt says, oh, are you still working for DHL? <laughs> no. Oh, you didn't get it. Oh, that's too bad. What happened? <sighs> what happened? What happened? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then so like, it's just like the, the reopening of the constant reopening of, right. the, of the wound is the, is the tough part. Yeah. So you come home that day, uh, you'd tell your wife. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, we're not buying a house. That's why I think I always started it. And she said, "You lost already?" Because <laughs> by this time she right. was used to. I mean, she married me. She knows what right. disappointment is like. You know, she's used to ongoing disappointment as a function of our relationship, right? She just likes there to be a little lead time. She likes to have her a little time. It's the same question you were thinking. It's like, how can we have lost already? <laughs> yeah, how can we have lost already? Usually, it takes weeks for people to figure out that I'm terrible, right? So we're not buying a house. She's like, "Well, how did this happen?" And I told her what happened, and she just went. And so she went to the stages. Well, was there a way you could intercept? Like, no, hun, 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 hun. We tried it all. We sent a kid with $5,000 and instructions, and she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So stuff like this is like, a, there's, there's personal family letdowns and mornings in every household associated with that agency, probably. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah. like boat, boat magazines were being thrown away. College and, and less luck. Like college money is, is disappearing. People are going to going to UMass instead of wherever they were going. Exactly. And you're not you're not moving down away from the heroin dealers. You're stay. You're not moving in a new house. And that times, eight, ten, twenty, fifty. However many people were involved in that. Five hundred people. Yeah. Five, that, there were right. there were five hundred right. disappointments of, of of some kind of caliber. And again, everyone had had some level of uh, of plans, right? You know, right. for when this big bump in all of our careers. Anybody fired? Um, I mean, do you, I think the intern never came back, you know, and I think it's probably of her own accord, you know, and, and I'm sure whoever it was, she was a good kid. And, yeah. you know, like, I'm sure it was just like, we'll just never mention this and we'll yeah. give you a you know, thing. But like, right. don't, you know, like they just was, but no one wanted to see her again. And that, right. that was not her fault. Obviously. I mean, right. it was her fault. It was really the fault of the managers, right? You know, yeah. like, they're the ones who should be. It's a cultural thing. And the cult- interns don't know your culture. At that right. Level, really. Right. Yeah. So except for her, everyone else is okay in terms of they kept their jobs to the extent that the money was there to pay them. Well, next the next following year, there were that sorry, that summer there were a bunch of layoffs, you know, yeah. and, and like you know another you know fifty sixty people yeah. got left. But that was also the the time, you know, like right. it was the following the crash, and, yeah. you know, things things were contracting, and and so lots of people left, right. and yeah. But it doesn't sound like it was vindictive. It wasn't like you're going to pay the price for this. I feel like that's one of the real. Good things about the agency. I actually really feel like I feel like it was meaningful that I said, I said it speaks really well of that of that culture. Yeah, within the larger ad culture, because there are certainly places when people their heads would roll by Monday morning. Or Monday but you know what? The other thing is, we'd all been up for weeks together, and right. we've been on planes together, and we've been in hotels together, and we're talking, and we really cared about this. And like you know, so you right. develop this team bond yeah. that really is stronger. Yeah. People are stronger. Like I, 
I the teams that I've worked on on pitches are like still some of my best like sort of yeah. work friends, and we take care of each other. Oh, yeah. so and so just got laid off. So and so from the pitch. Yeah, let's find her a job. You know, and then you and you're yeah. just like you know you're just part of like these strong. Again, I think differently than 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 different types of teams where you're not in these sort of intense kind of environments. So, so of all the people involved in that uh, advertising pitch disaster, do you think people learn from that? When you're doing new things, especially in creative industries and and in technology and stuff, there's just you're 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 forging, you're you're blazing new trails, you're on new ground, and there's just by there's, definition not everything's going to work. That's right. You can't go into new territory and expect everything to work the way it does when you're going over well trod ground. Most failure, I feel like, comes from taking something for granted by yeah. by making an assumption that you know, well, the intern will know or or we'll get it or. You know, we just we have our process and we're going to use our process. But anytime you're being innovative, you're outside the standard process. Once you're outside the standard process, anything is an opportunity for a mistake and for a for a for a catastrophic failure. Thanks to Jim Dowd, co-founder of Flying Car, for sharing his stories of failure today on Disaster. If you're a tech company trying to get the word out about your complex product, check out Jim's agency at flyingcarboston.com. And if you want to see what a great local small-town blog looks like, check out what Jim and his blogging partner, Katie Eunice, are doing at gloucesterclam.com. There's great writing there, and still no advertising on the site. Our theme music is Mamal Original by L.A.W. Sound effects today were Ben Bonkan and Paolo D'Amelio from freesound.org. And thanks to Jim Capillo, Lisa Smith, and all the folks at Cape Ann Community Television in Gloucester, Massachusetts, where this interview was recorded. Until next time, this is Stephen Mark Foltz reminding you that when you have a failure and you just want to hide from the whole world, do what I do. Stop opening your email, turn off your phone, and leave a message like this on your voicemail. I wish I could be with you today in the flesh, as they say. Unfortunately, I'm in India. Ever been in India? Very hot.